Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I hope you are doing great on this fine Friday morning. We did it. We made it to the weekend. I have a Palmetto State Armory deal of the day for you that you are not going to be able to resist. It's a complete MOE EPT pistol lower with the brace, regularly $449.99 for only $279.99. You can snag that at the link in the show description. If you need an upper to go with it, reach out to me on Twitter at Shouse. 34. In a curveball to gun grabbing organizations like Every Town and Moms Demand Action, a more diverse group of people, including core Democratic constituencies, took up the shooting sports in recent years, according to a biennial survey released this week by the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Covering the year 2022, The survey adds new clarity to a trend that emerged during the pandemic. Firearm use continues to grow. With new interest coming from women, liberals, younger people, urbanites, people of color, that means we're winning, guys. And that also means a complication for gun reform in coming years. As firearm use becomes more widespread among even Democratic voters, who have historically supported restrictions across all walks of life, all political persuasions, all lifestyles, we're seeing a growing acceptance and participation in gun ownership and the shooting sport, said NSSF spokesman Mark Oliva. I'm not sure how to say his name. Of course. (laughs) Today's gun owner, today's recreational shooter is more like everyone else in America. Some 25% of American adults went sport or target shooting over the two-year period, which the survey projects to be a whopping 63.5 million people up from 34 million back in 2009 when the biennial surveys began. But The percentage of new shooters defined as those who, quote, shot a gun for the first time in the last five years, jumped five points to 17%, compared to the last survey in 2020. And more significantly, the percentage of new shooters who identified as Democrats nearly doubled to 31%, more than 3 million people. Female new shooters also saw major gains, jumping from 17% of new shooters in 2020 to 25% in 2022. Can you hear the smile on my face right now? These numbers give me so much hope. A quarter of new shooters live in urban or suburban areas, marking a 71% rise. The survey also showed marginal increases of firearm use among Blacks, 2%, Hispanics, 1%, New shooters typically cited self-defense as their primary reason for taking up arms. Nearly one-third of them said the COVID pandemic, which drove a historic gun-buying frenzy, played a role in their decision to shoot guns. Well, 
that's because the government showed their hand. People came to realize that when the government's boot is on your throat, whether it is a left boot or a right boot is of no consequence. New shooters were more likely to shoot handguns, less likely to hunt than established shooters. New shooters were more likely to shoot handguns and less likely to hunt than established shooters. Those trends appear to be shifting what the average shooter looks like. Women now make up nearly one third of shooters compared to only a quarter back in 2009. Younger shooters aged 18 to 34 made up the largest share of those surveyed, edging out middle-aged shooters for the first time in the survey's history. Politics, though, does still appear to have some influence on the types of firearms people shoot. Only 5% of shooters who identified as Democrats shot the, quote, semi-automatic rifles that the party is widely committed to banning or restricting compared to 14% of Republican shooters. And while the steady rise in firearm use in recent years is good news for the firearm industry, the survey contains a silver lining for gun grabbers. Only about half of the people who live in a household with a firearm went target shooting. And about one-fifth of the people who went shooting in 2022 said that they did not expect to go again in the next two years which the survey survey described as a, quote, substantial challenge for retention programs. Still, the raw volume of gun sales indicates that firearms are becoming a more embedded feature of American life. FBI background checks for gun purchases, which is the closest way to estimate gun sales which are not tracked, skyrocketed by 60% to $21.1 million dollars from 2019 to 2020. Those are rookie numbers. Let's pump those up. I I actually, I'm very excited about that news. That's awesome. Common use is vitally important. So I'm I'm just really happy to hear that. Um, I have my live show Tuesday night, uh, Patriots and Petticoats. If you aren't subscribed to that, uh, you should totally check that out. Um, And then we had book club Wednesday night on Twitter spaces. So I have not had the opportunity to update you guys on the SCOTUS Chevron deference case, but I don't know. I am feeling a little white pilled today. I see a light at the end of the tunnel that is government overreach. The Supreme Court's conservatives appeared inclined to cut back the regulatory power of federal agencies with several justices during a pair of arguments seeming ready to overrule the legal doctrine that has bolstered agency authority for decades. Over more than three hours of argument, which I did listen to, by the way, it's pretty good. You should go to C-SPAN and check it out. If you get some time this weekend, you're piddling around in the garage or whatever, uh, you should go turn that on and listen to these arguments. The justices put the Biden administration's top Supreme Court lawyer on defense as she sought to preserve Chevron deference, which instructs courts to defer to agencies' interpretations of federal law in the event that it could have multiple meanings. So you heard that correctly. The judiciary is supposed to defer to however the executive interpreted the law and decided to enforce it. 
the practice has strengthened presidential administration's ability to regulate wide aspects of daily life. The range of examples referenced in arguments revealed the breadth of Chevron's impact, artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, environmental regulations. Although several conservative justices railed against the precedent during Wednesday's Wednesday's arguments, it remains unclear whether a majority is willing to outright overrule Chevron, which would mark a legal victory for business and anti-regulatory interests, for American interests. I This whole, like, let's say who it would, it's good for the entire country for us to go back to operating under the constitutional restrictions of government. The court sh- could instead narrow the doctrine's scope without explicitly disavowing it, which is probably what they'll do because John Roberts is a pussy, but I digress. In particular, three members of the high court's conservative wing, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, reiterated their long-publicized concerns about the precedent's viability. The government always wins, Gorsuch said. Elizabeth Prelogar, who I'm pretty sure is my least liked public figure, I dislike her more than Kamala Harris, by the way defended the doctrine on behalf of the federal government. Of course she did. It's just, I know that's her job and I get it, but like to take that job, to be the one who goes in and argues, you're a lawyer, you go argue against the constitution on behalf of the government, like it just don't like you. Uh, She said, the Chevron framework is a bedrock principle of administrative law. And she added that overruling such a foundational precedent should require a truly extraordinary justification, and petitioners don't have one. She noted that Congress has, for the past 40 years, legislated with Chevron as the background rule, informing how much discretion it gives to agencies. That's wrong. Agencies take the discretion that they want, and the legislative does nothing to dial that back. Critics contend that Chevron requires judges to abdicate their responsibility to interpret the law. They also note a lack of consensus on when a statute is ambiguous enough to trigger deference to any agency, and how some federal judges have openly criticized the doctrine. Should that be a clue that something needs to be fixed here, Gorsuch said? (laughs) What an idiot. Not him, her. Um, The court's three liberal justices, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Katanji Brown-Jackson, meanwhile, expressed opposition to overturning Chevron. They emphasized a desire to defer to subject matter experts at agencies when ambiguous, complicated policy issues arise, rather than having a judge attempt to draw the line. My concern is that if we take away something like Chevron, the court will then suddenly become a policymaker, Jackson said. No, no, ma'am, that's not what happens. You're ruling on the unconstitutionality of Chevron. You are saying that the executive can only execute on the laws passed by the legislative branch, not make law or interpret law themselves. You are the check and balance on the executive, and you need to start acting like it. 
Kagan gave a hypothetical about whether a judge or the Department of Health and Human Services should be the one to decide whether a cholesterol reducer should be considered a drug or a dietary supplement. In that case, I would rather have people at HHS telling me whether this new product was a dietary supplement or a drug, she said. Kagan added at one point, judges should know what they don't know. The liberals also questioned whether overturning Chevron would, quote, unleash a flood of litigation, as people who lost cases because of the doctrine would seek to have their issues reheard. We can only hope so. Conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who posed questions to both sides, also raised concerns about a shock to the system. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter if there's a shock to the system. Last I checked, you make a ruling based on constitutionality, not fallout, not shocks to the system, not feelings, not fear. You look at it and you say, "Mm, nope, that's not the job of the executive. This is unconstitutional. And you let the chips fall where they may, where they're supposed to fall. The lawyers attempting to overturn Chevron pushed back on the notion, insisting that thousands of decisions that have invoked the doctrine over the past four decades would still be considered precedent and subject to strong protection. And some conservative justices argued the opposite, contending that it is Chevron that has created shocks by giving the executive branch a wide license to flip-flop on its interpretations of statutes to fit its policy goals. The reality of how this works is Chevron itself has shocks to the system when a new administration comes in, Kavanaugh said. Meanwhile, Chief Justice John Roberts, who has been reluctant to overrule the court's precedents, questioned whether the doctrine had already been overruled in practice. This is what he does. He finds a way to be like, well, it's pretty much already done, or we're just going to like operate on the technicality of this. Not it, it, He's just... Okay, sorry. The Supreme Court has not invoked Chevron since 2016, and in some recent cases, the justices have either enacted carve-outs or simply ignored the precedent. And if that's the case, John Roberts, then you should have no problem overruling it. If 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 you're already practicing as if it doesn't exist, then make it not exist. Remove it. Repeal it. Whatever it is that you guys do, make it not so anymore. It shouldn't be that hard. The EPA cases last year are a good example of this. The justices weighed whether to replace Chevron with another more narrow test known as Skidmore, under which a judge would decide to defer to an agency only if the agency's argument is persuasive. As part of that analysis, judges examine consistency or whether an agency has flip-flopped. Kavanaugh characterized Skidmore as being about the power to persuade, not the power to control. The high court considered the weighty dispute through two separate cases Wednesday, and the cases are nearly identical. In both, herring fishermen are challenging a rule that mandated their companies fund federal monitors on board their vessels. Invoking Chevron, lower courts deferred to the agency and upheld the rule. 
each group of plaintiffs and a veteran Supreme Court advocate arguing for them is also backed by an anti-regulatory group. The justices first heard from Roman Martinez, a partner at Latham and Watkins, who is representing a Rhode Island fishing uh, fleet alongside the conservative New Civil Liberties Alliance. And in the second case, the plaintiffs are represented by the Conservative Cause of Action Institute and Paul Clement, who served as George W. Bush's top Supreme Court lawyer. And he successfully argued cases that resulted in some of the biggest wins for conservatives at the high court in recent years. Jackson is actually recusing herself from that case as she heard oral arguments in the dispute while sitting on the lower court. Decisions in the cases Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo and Relentless Incorporated versus Department of Commerce are expected by the end of June. I'm here for it. Rip the Band-Aid off. Speaking of castrating the Biden administration, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton refused the Biden admin's effort to reclaim control of Shelby Park and Eagle Pass after the drowning of three migrants attempting to cross the border through the Rio Grande over the weekend. Paxton, in a letter first reported by uh, the Daily Caller, responded to a Department of Homeland Security lawyer who threatened legal action if the state does not remove all barriers blocking access to and allow federal border control agents access to Shelby Park, a stretch of land along the river that's been used as a staging area for migrants. It was seized by Texas National Guard troops in the border town of Eagle Pass. Because the facts and law side with Texas, the state will continue utilizing its constitutional authority to defend her territory, and I will continue defending those lawful efforts in court. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security should stop wasting scarce time and resources suing Texas and start enforcing the immigration laws that Congress already has on the books. He disputed several allegations that were made by DHS counsel Jonathan Meyer in the cease and desist letter, including the accusation that Texas National Guard troops did not allow Border Patrol agents into Shelby Park to rescue the migrants on Saturday. Contrary to your letter, Texas National Guard troops did not prevent U.S. Border Patrol from entering Shelby Park to attempt a water rescue of migrants in distress. The federal agents at the gate did not even have a boat. They did not request entry based on any medical exigency. Federal agents allegedly told TMD's staff sergeant that officials in Mexico already recovered the migrants' bodies and that the situation was under control. He also said Myers' alleged efforts to blame Texas for the migrant deaths are vile arguing that the DHS and the Biden administration policies that are leading migrants to risk their lives and sometimes lose them, trying to cross the Rio Grande. Border agents on Saturday noticed six migrants in distress while attempting to cross the border through the Rio Grande and allegedly attempted to enter Shelby Park to help the migrants. Meyer wrote in his letter that Texas officials allegedly refused when the Border Patrol requested access to the border. Three migrants, a woman, and two children drowned. 
Texas has demonstrated that even in the most exigent circumstances, it will not allow Border Patrol access to the border to conduct law enforcement and emergency response activities. Texas's actions are clearly unconstitutional and are actively disrupting the federal government's operations. You mean operations of importing millions of people illegally? Because I think you guys are doing pretty well, but thank goodness for Texas at this point. He warned Paxton that if Texas does not remove the barriers around the park and continue to block Border Patrol's access to the park, DHS will turn to the Department of Justice to take further legal action. If you have not confirmed by end of day on January 17th, that Texas will cease and desist its efforts to block Border Patrol's access in and around the Shelby Park area and remove all barriers to access to the U.S.-Mexico border, we will refer this matter to the Department of Justice for appropriate action and consider all other options available to restore Border Patrol's access to the border, Meyer wrote. Abbott has called for stronger border security measures, As the United States deals with an influx of migrants, there were more than 2.4 million encounters at the U.S.-Mexico border during the 2023 fiscal year, from 1.7 million in 2021. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection data, the DOJ last week urged the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene on the issue by blocking Texas from preventing Border Patrol entry into the area. Abbott, however, maintains that Texas has the authority to control the park. Texas has the legal authority to control ingress and egress into any geographic location in the state of Texas. And that authority is being asserted with regards to that park in Eagle Pass, Texas, to maintain operational control of it. Good for him. Good for calling Biden's bluff. Good for advocating and working on behalf of the citizens of Texas. In great news for the future of the world, a new report claims that Chinese scientists have developed a coronavirus strain that attacks the brain and has a 100% kill rate in mice used to experiment with the virus. I wonder if we funded this one too. The report indicates that Beijing based scientists allegedly linked to China's military, cloned the GXP2V virus, which was originally discovered in 2019 in Malaysian pangolins prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. The virus was stored in a Beijing lab after it was initially cloned. While it's not yet been revealed when the newly disclosed study was completed, Researchers involved with the experiment suggested that the coronavirus could have experienced a virulence-enhancing mutation while it was stored in the lab, which could have contributed to the virus's kill rate. Severe brain infection during the later stages of infection may be the key cause of death in these mice. This is the first report showing that a SARS-CoV-2 related pangolin coronavirus can cause 100% mortality in HACE2 mice, suggesting a risk for GXP2V to spill over into humans. The mice involved in the coronavirus research were quote humanized. 
whatever the fuck that means, in order to examine how the virus could potentially impact humans. Researchers reportedly documented that each of the infected mice surprisingly died within just eight days. Francis Ballou, who is an infectious disease expert at University College London, described the study by Chinese scientists as terrible and scientifically totally pointless. I see nothing of vague interest that could be learned from force infecting a weird breed of humanized mice with a random virus, he wrote. Conversely, I could see how such stuff might go wrong. Richard Ebright, a chemistry professor at Rutgers University, said he agrees with Ballou's perspective on the coronavirus research. The preprint does not specify the biosafety level and biosafety precautions used for the research. The absence of this information raises the concerning possibility that part or all of this research, like the research in Wuhan, that likely caused the COVID-19 pandemic recklessly was performed without the minimal biosafety containment and practices essential for research with potential pandemic pathogens. They say this like they're surprised. China was operating an undisclosed and unsanctioned biolab in a warehouse in California, and no one has batted a fucking eye about it. Hai hao wo zai shui, Zhongguan. Biden's EV push isn't going so well for him. Frigid temperatures across the nation brought even more bad news for the electric vehicle industry. Turns out, cars don't charge well when it's cold outside. In the Chicago area, dead Teslas are stacked up at charging stations while frustrated owners wait hours in the freezing cold to get their batteries charged. In addition, the car's batteries reportedly drain faster in colder weather. One study from 2019 reported that at low temperatures, it can reduce the electric vehicle range by 40% or more when drivers are using the car's heaters. When it's below freezing, most people are using their heaters. That's not the only blow to EVs in recent days. Hertz announced that it's ditching one-third of their electric vehicles, or 20,000 cars, from their rental fleet, and will be replacing them with what? Good old-fashioned gas-powered vehicles? You mean the kind that customers actually want to drive? This is a major about-face from the car rental giant, which has spent billions funding a gradual transition to an all-electric fleet, alas. It turns out that the supposedly climate-friendly switch is going nowhere. Management explained in a statement this will position the company to eliminate a disproportionate number of lower-margin rentals and reduce damage expense associated with EVs. That's corporate speak for the cars are unpopular and uneconomic. Hertz's EV dump will resonate beyond the car rental world. U.S. consumers are being enticed by the Joe Biden administration to buy electric vehicles, but they remain unconvinced. Inconvenience is a major issue as charging stations remain inadequate to large-scale adoption. In addition, as Hertz noted, maintenance costs are higher. Uh, North Coast Research reported um, tires on EVs burn up 
maybe 20 to 40% faster than an ICE engine vehicle. Tires are really expensive, and accident repairs also cost more. Data from Mitchell, which is a company that publishes information for body shops, shows the average EV cost $950 more to fix than a gas-powered vehicle. Patching up Teslas is especially pricey. High purchase prices, even taking into account the lavish subsidies that are being handed out by the Biden administration, remain the top reason that electric vehicles are piling up in dealer lots. Cox Automotive reported in December that overall car inventories in the United States totaled 71 days supply for the first time in two years, but the electric vehicle inventory remains well above the industry average at 114 days supply. Those figures do not include Tesla's because Tesla sells directly to the consumers. The Biden administration has made adoption of electric vehicles key to their climate agenda. But consumers are not playing ball, failing to be seduced by lavish tax credits or assurances that they're saving the planet. Wait till word gets out that cold weather makes the cars even less reliable and convenient. Maybe Hertz should just stick with cars that their customers want, and maybe the Biden administration should allow the marketplace to determine the popularity of vehicles. That would be a real democratization of the industry. In addition to failed EV policies, Joe Biden's administration on Wednesday finalized the approval of a $1.1 billion to help keep Africa's, or not Africa's, I'm so sorry, to help keep California's last operating nuclear power plant running. The funding is a financial pillar in the plan to keep the Diablo Canyon power plant producing electricity until at least 2030, five years beyond its planned closing. In 2016, plant operator Pacific Gas and Electric, environmental groups, and plant worker unions reached an agreement to close the four-decade-old reactors by 2025. But the legislature voided the deal in 2022 at the urging of Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who said the power is needed to ward off blackouts as climate change stresses the energy system. So what you're saying is the grid can't sustain your shitty policies? Say it ain't so. California is the birthplace of the modern environmental movement and for decades has had fraught relationships with nuclear power. Environmentalists argued California has adequate power without the reactors and their continued operation could hinder development of new sources of clean energy. It doesn't get much cleaner than nuclear, you guys. They also warned that long-delayed testing on one of the reactors poses a safety risk that could result in an accident. The fight over the seaside plant located midway between Los Angeles and San Francisco is playing out as the long-struggling nuclear industry sees a potential rebirth in the era of global warming. Nuclear power doesn't produce carbon pollution like fossil fuels, but it leaves behind waste 
that can remain dangerously radioactive for centuries. Separately, PG&E has submitted an application to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for a 20-year extension of the plant's operating licenses, typical in the industry, but emphasized the state would control how long the reactors run. That is your Friday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. We will be having Liberty Happy Hour this evening at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time on Twitter Spaces. Please join me, join the conversation. I'd love to have you guys there. Otherwise, if I don't see you there, you guys take care. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will be back on Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.